0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is where we will be this Lord's Day. As you can see, our pastor is away. We remember him this Lord's Day as he's ministering in the great tiny state of Delaware. We'll remember him and pray for him in a moment. For us here at Twin City, we look this morning to Psalm 63, a sermon entitled, Worship in the Wilderness. Worship in the Wilderness. And as we look to the Lord, let's ask for his help as we come to study his sacred word. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that we've been able to sing to you and pray to you. And now, as you speak to us by means of your word, would you be our guide and teacher today? We humble ourselves before the majesty of your word and before you in your great glory on the throne. We look up with our eyes to you, asking that you would feed us and instruct us. Lord, we pray that you would convict and convert. Would you correct and would you comfort all for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Psalm 63, worship in the wilderness. It was some years ago in seminary that a professor once said something to students that we were to remember and always keep with us anytime we entered into the pulpit. What was it that we were to remember? That anytime we preach, we preach to a room of broken hearts. What was it that our professor was trying to instill in us? Simply the reality that each time God's word is opened, those gathered to hear it live in a world marred by sin. And because of that, our own lives are often and frequently, even presently, touched by suffering. Whatever that suffering might look like, each unique to us, tailored to our own lives. Suffering attached to and connected with our own life and physical health. Suffering and trial attached to relationships, whether it be family or friends. Trials and suffering connected with our employment, whatever our calling is in life. Even the trial and suffering of simply where we live in our land. And keeping that in mind, lest we be discouraged, we do well to remember what a Christian once said long ago, that God's grace grows best in winter. God's grace grows best in winter. What is meant by this? Simply that, quite opposite than the way that you and I observe things. Presently it's spring, outside the weather's warming, With our yards, we look and we see new life coming forth. Flowers growing and blooming. Trees and their leaves developing. But in God's economy, the way he operates in the lives of his children, that his grace grows and blooms best when it's most difficult, when it's winter. Perhaps this morning, with that in mind, the Lord is seeking to bloom the flower of grace, even to bring forth and bloom the flower of praise, something that you and I need to be reminded of. And again, we might sit here and say, well, I I wish that were so. I wish that I could praise. But if you were to take time and meet with me and talk with me, uh, my life is complicated. If only things were a little bit different my life is hard, if I could but change my circumstances, then I would praise. But friend, if you live by that logic, you will never begin to praise the Lord. We do well to remember that we can't change our circumstances. However, we can be changed in our circumstances. And despite our circumstances, even if it's that period of winter, Regardless of our lot in life, market and market well, great praise can rise out of great trial. Let me repeat that this morning. Great praise can rise out of great trial. How do we know that? Well, such is the case when we look to Psalm 63. A psalm well-known, intense in its devotion, quite stirring with its praise, yet all the more instructive when we look at the heading and see the circumstances in its author's life. Psalm 63, we look to the heading, we read that this is a psalm of David, note, when he was in the wilderness of Judah not merely on a sightseeing trip not merely that he can get out and enjoy the great outdoors but rather when he was in the wilderness of judah we go back to his life recorded in first samuel and second samuel and we pick up two very significant events in his life drove him out into the wilderness the first when saul the king was after him And we would submit the second, likely the very event in his life, clued into us by the end of the psalm, verse 11, that this is when David himself is king. The most severe, the most intense, the most personal trial he endured. When not merely a friend, not merely a companion, but when family Turned against David, betrayed him, and sought to end his life. Do you remember what happened in his life going back to 2 Samuel 15? That when David, after all the events of his colorful life, all the experience and already all the trials he's endured, that in 2 Samuel 15, when David is king, his son Absalom, began his thorough and systematic attempt to undermine and ruin his own father's life. That there in 2 Samuel 15, if you read the account for a period of about four years, Absalom silently works as an assassin to attack his father, to undermine his kingdom, working the people, beginning to sow seeds of doubt that the people would Uh, question and wonder if David and his character and integrity is fit to be king. How Absalom began to win the people over to him and how the account tells us that he stole the hearts of the people For four years, this silent campaign lies flowing forth, all then culminating when he would present himself to his father, feigning that he's going to serve the Lord. And when he departs and goes to the town of Hebron, That at that moment when David, as king, least expects it and is most caught off guard, he strikes, there's a mutiny, and David faces a very real threat to his own life. Such that the king flees out into the wilderness for his own survival. Betrayed, blindsided by friends and worst family. In the words of the hymn, tempted, tried, and almost failing. And yet when he was in the wilderness of Judea. The great Judean desert with all of its challenge physically and even for David now mentally. At the very point, you and I might expect to hear a voice calling out of the wilderness of complaint. Rather, by means of the psalm, we hear a voice of praise. And thus, as we've said, great praise can rise out of great trial. You might sit and wonder, how is that even possible? How is that possible for me in my life? Well, why don't we read the psalm and we can find out this morning. Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I've seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life To destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Great praise can rise out of great trial. By means of Psalm 63, we look to David, and while he is in the wilderness, he worships. And so we ask this morning, what enabled David to worship in the wilderness? What can enable you and I today, whatever our circumstance might be, whatever winter we presently might be enduring, how can we worship in the wilderness? Well, David models for us that there are three assurances for every believer that you and I if we are believers, if we, like David, know the Lord, we can turn to these assurances, we can draw upon these assurances. Indeed, these assurances can fuel worship in the wilderness. And I'll clarify, these are assurances only for true believers. If you find yourself here today, whether invited by a friend or you grow up and you know well in your heart, I don't know the Lord. What is spoken here is a blessing that you don't yet have access to. Oh, we pray that you would come to see the blessed life of a believer, not that they're spared of trial, but all that they have in the midst of trial. That even this morning, by means of the psalm, you can glimpse what can be yours in this great God. Three assurances. And again, to further bridge from David's day to ours, think, have you experienced hostility? Are you experiencing lies against you? Attack? At this moment, there are enemies friends, worse even if it's family? Well, such is the case for David, and as he turns to these assurances, so you and I can, no matter how dry or demanding the situation might be. Now let me tell you up front, at least with this first assurance, Uh, you are going to play the role of detective for a few moments, and before I give you the assurance up front, you need to think as we walk through verses 1 through 5, what might this first assurance be? But I promise I'll provide it for you, and then the second and third will provide in due course. So the first assurance given to us in verses 1 through 5, clued in on the text, we first see in verse 1 that despite his circumstances, despite being pressed and tried, all the more this presses David to seek God, or he will cry out in verse 1, O God, O Elohim! Deliberately using the name for God in the Old Testament that calls to mind God in your greatness. God in your unrivaled glory. God in your unrivaled grandness. O great governor God, with all power, with all authority, to you I look, to you I cry. And how sweet it is to look upon this great God and to join with David in saying, You are my God. Again, such is true only for true believers. To look and to call upon this God and in a personal saving way declare, You are my God. And yes, amidst the trouble, amidst the trial, far from driving David away from God, it rather drives David to God, where he then says, I shall seek you earnestly, earnestly, intensely, resolvedly, diligently. In fact, the term even has the nuance which older translations will indicate early. Not that these ideas are mutually exclusive. Indeed, if someone is going to seek the Lord with this religious intensity, no doubt the first moment one wakes up, then and there this person, like David, will seek the Lord early, even earnestly. And playing off the situation that he's in, which again, he is out in the desert. He doesn't have ready at hand a nice bottle of Fiji water. And yet, he looks to God, he cries to God, and he says in verse 1, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Again, despite the circumstances, he looks to God and declares, I don't want to become dehydrated spiritually. I need you, God. Desperately need you. This led then Charles Spurgeon to say, Though there was a desert all around him, there was no desert in his heart. Again, this is incredible. If others were in this situation, perhaps if you and I were in his shoes, betrayed by friends, betrayed by family, we would turn to despair. We would turn and nurse bitterness, and that would begin to dehydrate us, but not for David He turns, he looks to God with one intense focus. My God, I long for you, I seek you, I thirst for you, I yearn for you. He then will turn in verse 2, despite his present condition, to help himself mentally, he turns back to the past. The prior opportunities when he could go to the sanctuary, When he says in verse 2, Thus, I've seen you in the sanctuary. To see you so as to enjoy you. I've seen your power and your glory. And David, out, out in the wilderness, thinks back to when he was in Jerusalem. Thinks back to the whole tent tabernacle. That unique place under that Old Testament economy where God would manifest his presence. And there with the Ark of the Covenant, there with the altar and the sacrifices, there at the very place where once before he would go and see the Lord and behold his power and behold his weighty glory. It's as if David mentally uses that to jumpstart and bring spiritual adrenaline to him in his present condition. Such that... Back into the present, verse 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. And we hear this. We might even stop this morning and say, David, are you a bit of an enthusiast? Are you a little fanatical about these things? You sure about that? Your loving kindness is better than life? I might ask you, do you think that's an overstatement today? Perhaps hearing that makes us a bit uncomfortable, as it should. For David, thinking about this present life. Thinking about what is most precious to him, even what is most precious to you. What is it this morning that you prize most? Is it this life with all of its uncertainty? All of its troubles, its heartache and hardship? And David steps in and he grabs us by the hand and he says, Lo, there is a better way. Despite this life, despite your circumstances, David says it is far better, yes, far better to know God or rather to be known by God. It is far better to love God or rather to be loved by God. David rightly understands, despite his circumstance, that he would be an undeserving recipient. The object of this God's loyal, committed, enduring, unconquerable love. Yes, indeed, that is far, far better than Life, And so rightly the Puritan David Dixon wrote the felt kindness of God and shedding abroad of his love in the heart of a believer is joy unspeakable and glorious, able to supply all wants unto him, to sweeten all troubles unto him to give him more comfort than what is most comfortable in this world. And thus, verse 4, yes, rightly, he declares, I will bless you as long as I live with this devout affection that's not going to fade like the morning fog but will rise like the sun and will shine despite the trial, such that even, not just vocally, but even now physically, verse 4, I will lift my hands in your name. With uplifted hands and uplifted heart, perhaps even indicating that as he praises, he will wait on the Lord to act. And we think, oh, David, really? Truly, you're able to praise in this way? And he continues in verse 5. Yes, presently and into the future, my soul is satisfied. My soul will be satisfied as with, and literally, fat and fatness. Marrow and fatness. Yes, David, out in the wilderness, famished, parched. He thinks about being the recipient of God's own love. And he says, though I am dry, spiritually I am quite full. Feeding upon, being satisfied, not just with what God gives, but with God himself. And I'm going to press on this for a moment. Think with me, a meal that you so enjoyed you and I might become a little hungry thinking of a feast you've enjoyed at a restaurant wanting the professional to handle and get it right. The dry-aged, sous-vide, pan-seared, high-quality choice of steak. For all you vegetarians, I'm sorry. And how that's so satisfied, so succulent. Add with it the appetizers and the sides and of course the rich dessert. And that feeling, that wonder, David declares, though he's out in the Judean desert. That though I'm famished, I'm also at the same time full. So, detectives. What is this assurance that David is drawing upon? It is this, and again, stated uniquely for believers My God satisfies. My God satisfies. David says that this morning, and so we ask. Can you say that this morning? Can you? Can you say and echo and give the amen? Your loving kindness is better than life. Can you say and give the amen to taste and see that the Lord is good? Can you give the amen to what one Christian said? That I rose early to seek Him whom my soul loves. Who would not rise early to meet with such company? Or as one person in the present declared that God is better than all that life offers. And better than all that death can take. Do you believe that? Can you say that? Or friend, have you been duped by the devil the way that our first parents were? Thinking and believing that in some way this God is holding something back. Did he not deliver up his own son? And if he delivered up his own son, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Friend, if you this morning are looking elsewhere for this satisfaction, Friend, if that's your life truly, your life will be the broken record playing on repeat, I can't get no satisfaction. Is that what you want? Are you going to continue in that miserable state? Or will you see what God offers himself and with David declare, yes, I've tasted, I've seen, your loving kindness is better, better than life. And you might say, yes, I, I know this. Friend, this is more than just cerebral Christianity. This is comprehensive Christianity. How do we know that? Look at all the anatomical terms David uses in these first five verses. My soul, my flesh, I've seen you, my lips, my hands, my soul, my mouth, and again with joyful lips. Uh, With David, we can join in and see that both with lips and life, both with head, heart, and hand, that this God indeed satisfies. That this God, despite the winter, is all that we need and all often that we have. Can I speak for a moment to all the young people in here today? The life that this God has blessed you with to just stop and recognize this very simple truth. You have been made by God for God. If you want satisfaction, if you want true joy, it's only found from God. So seek him now at a young age. As Augustine once put it, you know it. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Again, as James Montgomery Boyce put it, God does not hold back himself from those who seek him. Rather, he gives himself to them fully and in increasingly fuller ways. Or as God himself declared to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.13, If you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. My God satisfies That's the first assurance that David looks to to worship in the wilderness. There's now a second assurance that, again, all believers can turn to that fuels this praise and fuels this worship. What is the second assurance? It's found in verses 6 through 8. Not only does my God satisfy, number two, my God sustains. He sustains. And just as we began the day with David, so now we will end the day with David. And as David begins the day with God, so he will now end the day with God. Or again, we stop and we consider and picture him out in the desert wilderness. Under the starry sky. And as, again, the king is laying out there in such a hostile environment, He writes, he says, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. It's interesting, when he says, I remember you on my bed, you could translate that in the plural, beds, as if to say, he's in a period where he really has no place to lay his head his routine was thrown off. Maybe just by implication, we can draw and learn from that. That when our routine is thrown off, yet still we can seek the Lord and remember him. So for David, in the night, he says, during the night watches, uh, three divisions in ancient Israel, four hours each. First watch, second watch, third watch. And David experiencing not just a modern phenomenon. He's experiencing maybe what you experience, that of a sleepless night. You ever had that? You know you need to sleep and yet you can't sleep. And all the more that stresses you that you can't fall asleep so it keeps you awake. Though you need the sleep in like a cycle that goes. Even those unique moments where the body might be totally exhausted and yet the mind in some way is fully alert and can't shut off like an overdrive. Maybe you've experienced that. Anxious, fearful, worrying, thinking about the hardships one just endured looking ahead and knowing those hardships are going to continue when I get out of this bed. And yet David, though, in a sane situation, he's a good model for us, as the commentator Moutier said, a sleepless night is just as much a gift of God as is a night's sound sleep. How is that so? Well, with his mind not able to shut down and turn off, he instead redirects its activity Godward, where he will remember God. He will meditate on him. Meditate, the term from Psalm 1. One meditating on the law of the Lord. This rich Hebrew term of someone who is so thinking upon something that to themselves they're, they're muttering and murmuring and reflecting and under their breath rolling it around in the mind to oneself. Maybe like the way you and I might enjoy a hard candy. We get it and we place it in the mouth and we roll it around with the tongue and we suck out the sweetness. In the same way, now mentally, David reflects of how his God sustains and he remembers God, he meditates on him. Why? Look at verse 7. For you have been my help. You have been my help. Oh, such a help God is. David looks back to the past and he remembers, and borrowing the words from Psalm 66, come in here and let me tell you the things God has done for my soul. How God has delivered me. David's reflecting, oh, he's delivered me out of Jerusalem from the hands of my son. How this God has been my help and delivered me at a prior time from the prior king, Saul, when he sought my life. How this God has delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, and even as he declares, from the hand of that giant Philistine. David knows that this God has been his help. And he will trace God's past help and he'll remember this is the same God. This is the God who is unchanging. If he has been my help in the past, if he has sustained me in the past, so he will sustain me in the present. And all the more then, he goes into the shadow of God's wings and there in the very place of warmth, protection, provision, and security, he says I sing for joy. And even if we were to look back at the prior psalm, Psalm 62, there too, David will think about how this God, his God, my God is also my rock, my refuge, my stronghold, my hope, my salvation. And yet, though he thinks upon such things, that doesn't lull him into spiritual laxity. Far from it. David does all that he knows he can do. Verse 8. My soul clings to you. David understands, I can't change my circumstance. I can't do anything. You, God, must act. But I know what I can do. I will remember you. And I, with all that I am, my whole soul will cling to you, God. Will follow hard after you. The same term from Genesis 2, when a man leaves his family and is cleaving to his wife. pursuing. Committed, holding on to. And while David perseveres, oh, friend, the sweet truth. But at the same time, this God preserves. Your right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. The same right hand, Psalm eighty-nine, thirteen, that is exalted. The same right hand again, signifying God's might and power, Psalm one, eighteen, fifteen, that does marvelously. The same right hand, Psalm ninety-eight, verse one, that brings salvation. And here, that very right hand, upholding, or shall we use the word sustaining, my God sustains. Now, is that an isolated incident in the life of this Old Testament? Say, well, no. Jump to the New Testament. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of him with his friend Silas in Acts 16. They are in Roman prison. And yet, what do they do? They remember that God sustains and they sing to him songs of praise. Or Paul, again, at the end of his life, Facing certain death. Second Timothy 3 verse 11. What persecutions I endured. But do you remember? Out of them all the Lord rescued me. My God sustains. That's what David says. And so again we ask. Can you say the same? Think back. Pause and ponder. The many ways you at least are aware of how he has sustained you. His providential kind care. Or, friend, deep down inside, is there this underlying fear? An underlying fear that once was unknowingly stated by a friend I knew many years ago. Many years ago, I was speaking with a friend who was at that time quite zealous for the Lord, quite excited about the things of God. And though sincerely, perhaps ignorantly, said the following, that God, he hasn't let me down yet. Did you catch the underlying assumption? Whether the person even was aware of it or not. That he hasn't let me down yet? As if he could? As if he would? Is that how this God acts on behalf of his children? Is this God-like man often letting people down? Oh friend, not not this God. That's what makes this assurance all the sweeter. That this God, my God, sustains. And if this God is your God, such you can cry out with the hymn writer, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Or even as here, we love to often sing and proclaim, "He will hold me fast." My God sustains. So, friend, what assurances do we have here? In remembering, David is out in the wilderness. My God satisfies. My God sustains. Third and finally, in verses 9 through 11, we see, My God secures. And the commentator James Montgomery Boyce so helpfully reminds us when he says, If we are to be satisfied with God, it doesn't happen in Neverland, the land of make believe, but in this real world full of disappointments, frustrations, dangers, and I'll even add, enemies. Someone's going to be committed to the Lord, inevitably there will be people that turn against you. And it's one thing to read of enemies, it's quite another to have them yourself. And David, as he so intensely is seeking the Lord, well, with that same religious intensity, there are others seeking him. Verse 9, those who seek my life to destroy it. And again, how, how tragic. It's not just friends. It's not just companions. It's his own family that is seeking to destroy him. Perhaps you can relate. And yet simply, the enemy here is not simply because of who David is or because of who you are, but here it's rather because of whose David is and whose you are. Remember the words Jesus proclaims in John 15, if the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And as they seek to destroy and kill David, this faithful follower of the Lord, in quite an ironic twist, they will instead go into the depths of the earth. Poetic way of saying the place dead people go. Borrowing more imagery in verse 10, He says they will be given over to the power of the sword. They will be made prey or portion for foxes or better jackals. We ask what's happening here? Well, it's the scene of the battlefield. That there are these enemies preparing to go and fight and kill David, the faithful follower of the Lord. And as they prepare and as they scheme, we then arrive upon the scene a bit late and we look around surveying and All we see are these dead corpses strewn about on the battlefield. Did a battle take place? No, a slaughter took place. A bloodbath. Corpses lain left as portion for jackals to come and consume. Such is the sure fate, the settled fate for David's enemies, which is confirmed in 2 Samuel 18 were there on the battlefield and one day 20000 of david's enemies are slaughtered and the ringleader absalom riding on a mule trying to escape is in such an ironic twist caught by the tree branches with his head and neck hangs between heaven and earth And one of David's allies comes and with a spear pierces him, kills him. And in 2 Samuel 18, it says, they took his body and threw it down into the pit. Quite graphic. But such was their destiny. But for God's own, for God's people, for David, my God secures Such that, verse 11, the king, again, David speaking of himself, will rejoice in God and everyone who swears by him. Swearing allegiance, committed to the Lord, will glory. How can he say that? Because he's settled with the assurance, my God secures. And we'll even add, Timely, the very end of verse 11. The mouths of those who speak lies. God will stop. God will silence the enemies of his people. In other words, you and I need not worry. We can let God handle it. You and I then need to be persuaded. You and I need to believe and say, my God secures. Such are the assurances As David's in the wilderness, that enabled him to praise the Lord. Such are the assurances offered to all of God's people that can enable, remember what we said at the beginning, that great praise can rise out of great trial. But again, this is all true for those who know the Lord. You here this morning, sitting as a stranger to this God, looking on as an outsider, seeing the wonderful, blessed life, not trouble-free, but settled and sure that God gives to his people. That such a God is this God for his people. And will you leave here today and continue on that endless quest for satisfaction? sipping down the salt water of sin, thinking it's going to satisfy? When you know, well, sure, it ain't out there. But this God freely, fully, offers himself even as he comes down to this earth and he proclaims, I am the living water, I am the bread of life, all who thirst, all who hunger, come unto me and you will be satisfied. And every time the word of God is opened, this God offers himself to you. You're looking for rest, you're looking for security, you're looking even for your sins to be forgiven. He promises to do that. Why then turn and go this day looking for that elsewhere? Or he will even say, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to this God. Come to his son. Find forgiveness. Find satisfaction. Find this God and all that He is and all that He has for His own. What more could you want? What more could you have? Rightly, you can have it all. God and all that He is. But you must be willing to part with all to have Him. and trust them dear friend father we thank you that the life of a believer though it is not trouble free though it's often filled with trial and sorrow though the season of a Christian is often winter we've been reminded today that your grace grows best in winter and that great praise can rise out of great trial. Minister these assurances to our hearts, and Lord, will you please, as the great God and Savior, seek and save the lost today. We ask this expectantly in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.